Welcome to The Jewish Diasporist, a podcast exploring the political, social, and cultural implications of life in diaspora. I'm Zach Smarin. And I'm Ben Yanowitz. Today we're hosting David Adler. David Adler is a political economist originally from Los Angeles, California, whose work focuses on the politics of internationalism, how trade unions, social movements, and political parties can coordinate across borders, and how international institutions aid or impede those efforts. David served as the foreign policy advisor to Bernie Sanders during his 2020 presidential campaign, and currently he is the general coordinator of the Progressive International, which was formally founded in May 2020 to unite organize, and mobilize progressive forces around the world. As David will explain, the Progressive International is a organization that is still being built. While it has millions of members around the world, we encourage you to join within the process of building. This can be found on their website, which we'll put a link to in the show notes. Without further ado, let's get into this. We are carrying the stories of the ones who came before what stories will be told of us when we are here no more we commit ourselves to action it brings meaning to our days it's time to live our praise Welcome to the show. We're really excited to have you, David. Pleasure to be here with you both on a very gray London afternoon. But it's nice to be huddled inside, preparing for a long discussion of Jewish internationalism. David, it's great to have you here. Would you like to tell us just a little bit about yourself? Sure. My name is, is David Adler. I'm originally from Los Angeles, California, from the United States. Although the family has a very traditional, diasporic, diffuse migration from various corners of the Jewish universe, I have been on my own journey through uh, various country contexts where I've lived and worked from India to Mexico, to South Africa, to UK, Greece, Italy, now spending a lot of more time in Latin America as the general coordinator of a global network of movements, parties, and trade unions known as the Progressive International, which we founded a few years ago and have been building this infrastructure for the unification, coordination, mobilization of left and progressive forces in different parts of the world, given the scale of not only the crises we face, but also the alternative reactionary international arrayed against us. So my perspective comes a lot from living and working in these other contexts, which have oftentimes very different political, not just histories, uh, but perspectives on the present geopolitical conjuncture, on you know what counts as a burning issue. And a lot of my job is trying to find arenas of strategic unity between uh, not just forces, but uh, peoples and nations and regions that don't see the same way, uh, who can look at the same Rorschach image of contemporary international political economy and see completely different images. So that's been the fun part, and the challenge of, of the job. And that's what I do day to day on top of writing for various popular outlets like The Guardian or The New York Times or Foreign Policy and uh, joining you all on, on podcasts to chat, deliberate and speculate. It's great to have you here. You've talked a little bit about the Progressive International, as well as your Jewish identity. Do those two relate to each other in any you know significant way for you? And if so, how is that uh, taking place? I came from a very specific context and contrast 
or you might even say just a general familial and social socio-political contradiction, which was that two sides of my family came from two different, very different political traditions and different kind of coordinates in the Jewish diasporic universe. One, my mother's family came to the U.S. from whatever that constellation of Lithuania, Ukraine, and Russia in the teens, in the pogroms of the early 20th century, and arrived to Milwaukee, Minneapolis, these places in the Midwest where a kind of socialist Zionism was very popular. You know, Golda Meir, a lot of these early influences in the formation of the state of Israel coming out of the U.S. Midwest at that time. And that was kind of where my mother's family was. So they had a lot of pride about being from the United States of America, a country that gave them asylum and also a close connection to what they perceived as the more progressive elements of the Zionist project at the time. And that went unchecked kind of through my mother's life and, and family for generations, for two generations. My father's family comes out of the Parisian resistance to the Nazis and uh, openly, outwardly, and proudly communist tradition that was explicitly anti-Zionist uh, in nature, which put it, of course, on the kind of fringe of the Jewish left-wing movement in the post-war period to say, from the very beginning of the you know, great founding of the state of Israel, to say, you know, we oppose the Nakba and the dispossession of the Palestinians, but they were on their kind of journey. They ended up in Australia from France after leaving the war in 46, where they were part of the Australian Communist Party. And my father, who ended up coming back to, to France, where his family had been from, was and remains the kind of lifelong committed communist with the hard anti-Zionist and anti-imperialist, anti-colonial perspective. So I grew up uh, with a kind of uh, gringa for a mother who was kind of, you know, a Dodger dog eating, baseball loving, or, you know, sort of left liberal or well-meaning person. And then, you know, a father who was much more outwardly uh, anti-Zionist in nature. And of course, I was growing up in Los Angeles with a very con conservative Jewish community, or very Zionistic by impulse and conviction, going to summer camps where you had to sing Hatikva and, you know, basically celebrate instead of uh, raised these really flag, the American flag alongside each other as being kind of constituent pieces of the Jewish American identity. There's a very specific and kind of political orientation. So I grew up in that tension between the almost genetic assumptions about being part of American Jewry, which is that many people I grew up with would then go on to fight in the IDF, which I just couldn't really make sense of. Or the figure of Yasser Arafat was a great, again, a Rorschach for people, Southern Californian Jewry, who thought that this man was nothing more than a terrorist. And then, of course, so much of the world who saw him as a great liberator and a representative of, of Palestinian liberation. So there were lots of these kinds of tensions that were, I think were informative for me and for this certain kind of work. I think a part of the work of being on the left in the West, shall we say, the global North, is a kind of deprogramming effort. Take a lot of those assumptions that are built into our public and private education about the goodness of the U.S. American empire, about the righteousness of our war efforts, about the deservingness of uh, certain settler colonial projects about narratives of manifest destiny, be they in Palestine or in North America, and really beginning to uh, deprogram, start to see from a totally different perspective, start to see from a non-Northern uh, perspective, a kind of deep political empathic exercise. And I think that's still so much of the work that I do in this organization. We like to say that we work on a kind of South-North axis whether those protagonists from the South, whether those are in movements or trade unions or parties who are voicing their concerns and demands and making, you know, building a vision around which they want to unite towards South-South cooperation and trying to bridge the gap, a gap that especially through the past year of war in Europe 
that epistemological rift between how the North sees the world and how the South sees the world is going wider and wider and wider and helping people trying to be a, a driver of, shall we say, political education for a lot of these groups in the North, a public in the North to say, you know, this is how people who are not born and raised in London or Paris or Geneva or New York or Ontario see the world beyond your imperial epistemological Elysium contained zone, I think is very important to the work that we're trying to do without bending the knee to those northern demands or concerns uh, to say, you know, there's got to be a way to mobilize solidarities of the north to serve southern needs and a southern agenda. And that's, I think, very constituent of the work that we're trying to do. And also, I think, comes out of that very conflicted, you might say, schizophrenic framework in which I was raised, where there was the terrorist liberator, the, you know, safe haven and settler colonial project with respect to Palestine. That contrast, I think, has carried my political imagination and convictions for the rest of my life. And I think that that is still a big part of what we do. Well, I have a lot of questions just about generally what the Progressive International does, the way it's organized, the way its outlook is really based in strategy and how you understand integration of scales. There's a lot of questions I have. But as we're on the question of Jewish identity and Jewish politics in particular, I really wanted to kind of lay out what we've been thinking of as the diasporist orientation towards Israel-Palestine. So as the name of the podcast is Diasporist, I think it really helps to understand that we are really building off of Bundist ideas, Bundist being non-Zionist, really diasporist, but also unapologetically socialist and really internationalist. Being a part of the diaspora as our cultural identity really helps us have a Jewish identity that's really based in internationalism and a deterritorialized understanding of Jewish collective. I think that this perspective can lead us to a comprehensive Jewish internationalism. While our identity as diasporist may be deterritorial, it's still important to articulate how we, as Jews on the left, should approach the question of Israel-Palestine. This has led me to what I've been thinking of as a diasporist orientation toward Israel-Palestine. I use the word orientation because we really don't see this necessarily as like an end-all be-all or like a, a concrete plan like, oh, this is how we're going to solve the Israel-Palestine conflict because if only it were that easy. But it's more of a way to approach the question of Israel-Palestine as a Jew and really embracing the connection we have to Israel-Palestine as the state that claims to speak for Jews at the international level, but also recognizing that we do share this diaspora personhood, this diaspora identity, with a lot of Palestinians. And of course, the Palestinian diaspora has a whole bunch of contexts that are completely different and isn't necessarily a positive relationship towards diaspora, like my relationship towards Jewish diaspora. But in recognizing that we are in diaspora and we would like to stay in diaspora, but we can still have a connection there. The diasporist orientation towards Israel-Palestine is really hemmed about building Jewish diaspora unity on a progressive axis, really understanding that we have a Jewish diaspora identity that inf is informed by important social justice values like Takun Olam, fixing the world, and understanding that that informs us to actually work with Palestinians. But that is something we have to be doing as Jews. The first step would be to create that sort of unity or some framework for unity. And I've thought about this as potentially a Jewish section of the Progressive International. Which, if we were able to do, I believe because the Palestinian youth movement, which is based in the Palestinian diaspora, is a member of the Progressive International, I believe we could help build unity between the Jewish and Palestinian diasporas to have develop that common vision that you were talking about earlier. 
and then also have those connected to joint Jewish-Arab social movements in Israel-Palestine. And if we were able to create that tripartite alliance, I do think it would be a novel form of practical internationalism that could really show how you can have different non-territorial communities really actually be that sort of glue, perhaps, in an internationalist project, and maybe kickstart a fundamentally different peace process from the bottom up. So I guess I was just kind of curious what your thoughts on that might be, and how internationalists might approach the question of Israel-Palestine as a part of Jewish internationalism from your perspective. Huge questions, and I think it helps to start from a really conceptual conversation, challenging these kind of core concepts. And what exactly do we mean by the diaspora? It's a really commonly deployed phrase. Of course, it refers to kind of dispersion of people, but most commonly refers to dispersion of people from an original homeland. And I don't relate to Israel as a whole. I've never been to Israel. I don't relate to it. I don't support it. I don't identify with the concept of Jewish statehood. It's not part of my political identity, but it's also not part of my upbringing. I mean, it's just not part of my orientation, right? There is a question of taking on responsibility for things committed in our, our name as, as Jews that I think we need to, to fight. But I also think we need to defend the idea that, which is of course partly about like combating anti-Semitism around the world. We can get onto where these questions of anti-Semitism and, and its proliferation relate to the question of Israel-Palestine. But I think part of it is about insisting on a Jewish identity that has nothing to do with Israel. I mean, I really see mine as being not just orthogonal to the question of Israel-Palestine, but just not even relevant. I mean, I hear Zionists speak in my name, and I, what I want to defend principally is not an alternative position as a Jew on the Israel-Palestine question. It's my right not to be implicated in this Zionist project, you know? So committing too much to the concept of diaspora, I think, is giving something away. It's giving something away in which we concede already to the Zionist project that the nucleus, the seed, the genesis, for lack of a better word, of our religious identity and the religious cultural identity, or even our ethnic identity, is related to the Zionist project, which it doesn't have to be and, and isn't. And I think that we should think together about whether that is the right paradigm or the right holding pen for this political project is thinking about diaspora and diaspora connections. Yeah. I think that maybe I'll throw it back to you guys, because I think it is related to the question of what internationalism means. And we can get into, again, another conceptual conversation about what we what we mean by mm -hmm. internationalism. Where we're going to end up, I think, in this conversation is just the fact that there's not an even understanding around the world. I mean, I keep using this phrase epistemology or the Rorschach test or how we see the world. And I think that what we are seeing in the effort to try to build global coalitions is hugely disparate views of what constitutes internationalism, mm -hmm. views about what constitutes a healthy relationship to the nation state and its past and its present and its future. You know, I lived and worked a lot in the Balkans and I've lived and worked a lot in Latin America. And in the Balkans, the nation state has a reputation of being a vehicle, a driver, a very bloody inter-ethnic conflict and the origin of so many problems related to the, the fall of Yugoslavia and the, you know, internecine conflicts that have emerged in the last 25 years. Alternatively, in Latin America, it seems a vehicle of popular sovereignty, of national liberation, of the anti-colonial project writ large. And I think that even that raises questions about what internationalism means. And then where the Jewish identity, which is so transversal, which is not nationally grounded, and which we need to insist doesn't have to be nationally grounded, fits into a kind of you know, nation-based framework, yeah. I think is really complicated. And so I worry about grounding too much the Jewish question and the national question, because as someone who is an internationalist, but doesn't relate to the idea that my Jewishness is a national issue, it starts to feel like I don't know where I fit 
fit in that framework. So yeah, let me put it back to you. Yeah, I think the point that you made about having diaspora necessarily being rooted in one place is I think where you might come up against us in the terms of the way we understand it. I'm sure you know the history of the Bund, at least tacitly, where the Bund was, for the most part, based in Eastern Europe, and they pushed for what was called national personal autonomy, or national cultural autonomy, which essentially meant that they wanted to deterritorialize the entire concept of nationality into basically turning it into cultural organizations that could be not necessarily based in any one place at all. You could internationalize that entire system into just being able to say, I am a Jew, and I am a specifically, I'm an Ashkenazi Jew. So this is the heritage and culture that I'm upholding and embodying and hoping to continue and deepen and develop, really. So I think what that really shows, though, is that diaspora doesn't necessarily need to be rooted in one place because you made the point that your family is from different places, has different views. And like my family is almost all Ashkenazi, but there are Sephardic Jews, there's Mizrahi Jews, there's the B'nai Israel community in India, there's, there's Jewish communities all around the world. And embracing the fact that it's not about one place, and actually that's why we're kind of really pushing this diasporist idea, because it's not about being tied to one place, but the fact that we are bound together, part of one greater cultural legacy, cultural history, that isn't actually rooted to any one place. A few weeks ago, I was in Poland, and we visited the house my great-grandfather grew up in. He left in 1928, and this house is still there near the Ukrainian border. It's made me question, like, where am I indigenous to? The language of indigeneity is thrown around a lot these days, but, but it doesn't map neatly onto Jewish identity, which I think you've really identified with that concept of a Jewish state representing indigeneity there. And we're, we are really trying to decenter Israel-Palestine in the way we understand our Jewish identity. I think that is hugely important with the way things are going there. But also at the same time, trying to negotiate between decentering Israel-Palestine, but also recognizing that we do have some form of obligation to trying to make peace in Israel-Palestine. When I think of diasporism, in terms of working around Israel-Palestine, recognizing that we can be American Jews. We have no intention to go to Israel-Palestine. I'm actually going next week for a, for a delegation. But we have no intention to move there. We want to stay in the U.S. where we feel at home, but at the same time want to engage productively on this very heated issue because unfortunately it is a centerpiece of Jewish politics, at least in the way that they're contentious and that they get a lot of discussions. So it's not really necessarily something that we think is solely focused on Israel-Palestine at all, but actually in our own communities and in developing our communities to take a stand as part of a broader vision of Jewish cultural revitalization and develop our, our communities on democratic lines. Yeah. So it's more of just a perspective, I think. Totally. I totally hear that. And I think that there's part of me that is kind of so traumatized by growing up in that corner of US American Jewry that I'm just kind of allergic to organized Jewish like action in general, you know, because there is another tradition of, of Jewish political action that's just totally transversal. I mean, whether it's Trotsky or whether it's the Argentine left, which has lots of sort of Jews sprinkled in throughout its history and you know, who take up these roles, whether it's in the trade unions or political parties, right? There are Jews who want to live and uphold those 
those values that are core to the religion and to our political tradition, but who aren't organized along the axis of sort of the, the Jewish community as being a kind of core, the nucleus. And I, you know, I, I'm not an Israel-Palestine activist, right? This has never been the main object of my attention. And I always have seen myself much more embedded in causes or movements that are burning in their own way, but are not, you know, so close to Israel-Palestine. So I don't say that with any sense of glory or, you know, I say with, with huge respect to people who have taken the issue on. I say it as someone who's like really keen to defend the idea that our place in the, let's say, global justice movement is everywhere and all the time. And I worry about, we get trapped in a situation where we're called on to be more and more and more involved in the resolution of the Israel-Palestine conflict, which we do have that special obligation to. But then obviously it's a vector of anti-Semitism in its own right to be so biologically or so genetically tied together the question of the Jewish identity and the Israel question that I do get a bit cautious or hesitant or worried or defensive about you know, our place and our role in other parts of the fight so to speak, mm -hmm. while understanding that. I mean, I say this by saying, I think I have a lot to learn myself from this. But when we talk about, is there a place in an international for an organized Jewry? Totally. The question is not just for an organized Jewry. It's the question is, what are we doing with that organized Jewry? What is the organized fight? Because Judaism in and of itself, when it gets organized, you know, there's nothing that tells us about the political orientation, the cause or the consequences of organizing. And this is true, you know, across the board, right? Like organizing your community, fine, but you can organize your community to like do a Quran burning <laughs> or you can organize your community to like feed the poor. And so I always get a bit, again, because of that upbringing, I get nervous about just Jewish community, qua Jewish community, because I've seen the cause of Jewish community deployed to do so much harm. I mean, I was watching just for fun last night, a couple of friends were over and we were really exhausted. We're like, what's the most vapid thing we can turn on? So we turn on Netflix and there's a new show, Jewish Matchmaker. And a uh, US American Jew has just like moved to Jerusalem and is like, I'm making Aliyah for Tikkun Olam. And I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? How can we look at the same concept, you know, the same idea that would draw us in so many different directions, whether it's fighting for debt justice for nations that are under the boot of the international financial system, or whether it's about ecological justice and communities around the world who are on the front lines of environmental breakdown, right? How do you look at that same concept and think, I'm going to go to partake in the Zionist project at the height of its most neo-fascist and expropriatory tendency. So this is where I get a little bit confused, mm -hmm. cautious, defensive, and a bit kind of agitated because I'm sort of thinking like, well, I don't know how I fit into this whole thing. And yeah. I've kind of left it to others to lead that fight. And, you know, I've got a lot of learn to, to learn from them, from you both. I mean, that's precisely why we are really trying to put forward an alternative understanding of Judaism that's not at all really centered in Israel-Palestine, because as you said, it is deployed and really horrible ways and we need to make sure that really can't be the way that it's used especially not exclusively because that really degrades and just completely disrespects the history of that liberatory value within judaism in the lead up to this interview i was really looking into the details of the progressive international to really understand the organization if you go on the web page you can see that there are three levels of leadership within the organization you have the council which includes some really incredibly huge names within the leftist tradition, including people like Cornel West, Slavoj Zizek, Gustavo Petro, the Colombian president, Jeremy Corbyn, 
the director of the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research, Vijay Prashad, really from a lot of different tendencies within internationalist history. According to the website, this is responsible for setting the strategic direction of the Progressive International. Um, in addition, the Progressive International has a cabinet, of which you're a part of, it says is the executive of the organization. It also has a secretariat, which it says runs the day-to-day -day organization. I was wondering if you could give us a rundown about how the organization actually functions in practice, especially in relation to these different leadership bodies. Totally. And then there's another whole layer as well, which is the membership, which are the organizational members who adhere to the to the PI movements, parties, unions, as I mentioned. And we're in a process of massive expansion of that membership as we prepare for our summit in Brasilia in August. We work on kind of two different tracks. One is a more reactive track and one's a proactive one. And the reactive one, someone gets arrested, killed, expropriated, an election gets stolen. We do a lot of trying to create emergency responses that can either mobilize anything from the fighting skill and ambition from you know, signatures and videos all the way to more substantial commitments around changing policy and reorienting policy to reflect, uh, you know, there's a massacre in some part of the world and we want to have people respond with a substantial policy commitment to, you know, either sever ties diplomatically or economically with a government at the level of the nation or a region or a city. So there's a reactive dimension of it and there's a proactive dimension, which is that there's various initiatives that we run and have been running for you know months or years. One of them is around the approach of the 50th anniversary of the new international economic order, which was a UN declaration in 1974 that brought together nations across the third world and a vision of sovereign development that carried them through the 70s and into the 80s when the neoliberal counter-revolution kind of broke down a lot of the ties to the group of 77 and the world is movement in general. And we're trying to rebuild a lot of this energy of a, you know, asserting Southern power and, and building capacity for collective action on based in the South towards whatever we call it South-South cooperation now. But it's really about breaking down an architecture of economic domination by the North towards more cooperative ties led by and for Southern power. So that's one thing that we run. And that's about, you know, I did a launch in, a, in New York with a bunch of UN ambassadors, a bunch of permanent representatives. We then took that to a Congress in Havana to inaugurate the Cuban presidency of the group of 77 with the government there. And in July, we'll have the next phase of that, which is a North-South dialogue, or as we're calling it, a South-North dialogue, which was very important 50 years ago. And we think we need to revive this South-North dialogue, especially in the context of, you know, an IRA or a EU Green Deal that's going to be highly extractive of natural resources in the South and efforts by the South to cartelize as they did in the 70s around OPEC, whether it's cobalt or nickel or lithium. So that's another thing we do, which is more programmatic. It's about building consensus, about building a, an agenda and about executing certain policy proposals in that arena. So there's lots of things that we run in that more proactive space. We send observer delegations to elections as we'll do in Turkey this weekend. We're recording five, six days away from the Turkish elections next Sunday and try to use that delegation as a kind of magnet for attention, solidarity, political action around the defense of free, fair, transparent elections. I could go on with a longer list. But the way the governance structure works is, of course, along both of those axes. The reactive side, our members of our council, of our organizational membership, call us at the secretariat and we act as kind of switchboard operators to try to take on demands, to execute different campaigns, make sure that there's a kind of rapid action response to the needs of the members at any level of the governance structure. And then for proactive initiatives, these are set by the priorities of the council when they meet. So when they meet, they discuss, you know, what are the key things we need to do? Okay, one thing we need to do is we need to take on the network of the neo-fascists that is organizing around the world. Okay, well, we're going to launch this observatory. We're going to make sure that we're defending democratic processes at critical moments. We're also going to do a big research project on the Reactionary International, mapping these actors, making sure we have a clear understanding of how it was possible for there to be, you know, copycat insurrections between the U.S. Capitol and the Brazilian Three Powers Plaza two years later. So part of it is 
means, you know, taking the expression of high level priorities and translate them into campaigns and actions and initiatives that the secretary kind of execute in partnership and in coordination with the membership. And that's all a work in progress. I mean, we built this proposal for many years for a new international fit for the 21st century. It's a crazy idea then. It's a crazy idea now. And we decided to forego major foundation money or billionaire backing or anything that really tend to power large-scale international organizations. So we try to do a lot with a little and have kind of an agile, highly-powered young team in the Secretariat that can then do this work of international coordination across continents and languages and even political traditions, as you mentioned, which is part of what makes us a kind of unique organization is that we're a non-sectarian organization and we don't get involved with domestic political conflicts. We try to be an effective coordinating vehicle at the international level and really focus on those arenas of strategic unity because there are so many things that bring that coalition together and, and actually so few that split it apart. When it comes to membership of the affiliated organizations that join the Progressive International as organizations, what does it really mean for those organizations to be part of the international? How are they integrated within the broader framework that you guys are building? So we've created a kind of organic structure that we're creating, you know, even more of an organic relationship between the membership organizations and the councils. So the idea is to really have a kind of circular governance structure where everyone has representation and when there's fewer free-floating intellectuals or big stars of the international left and the more people who are embedded in mass movements who really have the ability, the capacity, and the credibility to mobilize communities. For example, we love to work with the trade union movement because they actually represent people with clearly expressed material interests that can do things like stop building planes, certain weapons for Augusto Pinochet, whatever, choose your moment of great trade union history, with which I'm sure you're both very familiar. So membership is an evolving concept. It's very closely linked to this question of capacity and the platform and the infrastructure that we're building. I mentioned before that we have a kind of switchboard model where there's a lot of proactive coordination where the secretariat's really in charge of trying to make the pieces fit together. The idea was within some years, we'd be able to transition from that switchboard model to one that can kind of function more, not automatically, but without needing so much active direction. People can kind of coordinate between themselves. The questions that we're asking here are like, massive and age-old about internationalist praxis and the best way of organizing stuff. I think people thought 20 years ago that technology was going to be the fix for this, that we would be able to just basically enable international coordination through digital platforms or member areas of websites, but it just doesn't work that way. So it can be quite resource intensive to, you know, think about how we get these people together in ways that build a relevant amount of trust and intimacy to facilitate or to enable really serious and coordinated action. So far, we've tried to be a kind of laboratory for a lot of ideas, throw stuff at the wall, see what kind of works what's effective, what serves our members best. And I think that that exercise of experimentation is really important because I don't think that internationalism is actually that developed of a practice or a praxis. It's not one that if you look back through history, we have a really clear set of examples or a North Star in terms of what an international is and should be. We have a set of debates. We have some programmatic convergence around, for example, the eight-hour workday. And we have some failed examples of coordination around you know, the First World War and what it means to develop coordinated anti-imperial position, you know, civil war, not an imperialist war. It comes out of a certain tradition of Leninist internationalism. But in general, how to run an international beyond just like the rhetoric or spending tons of money just like get together in fancy places and to you know have catered food. These are undercooked concepts and we need to try a bunch of stuff, keeping creative, keeping agile 
keep trying things out, keep working with our partners to see what is exciting, what serves them materially, politically, culturally. And the, the ambition is that at the end of this experiment, for however long we go, we're able to learn a lot and become an effective resource for people who want to be engaged as internationalists in their own respective practices so that we know about what works, what doesn't work, and you know, what are the traditional pitfalls of trying to do international coordination? I'm actually doing my dissertation basically on the practice of internationalism, which is part of why it's so exciting to talk to you right now. One of the big elements of internationalist praxis, as a lot of people thought about it at like the 1900s, was that you can't really have effective, real, substantive internationalism until you've developed the national level of organizing to a certain point to really enable it. And I think it's not really true at all. But I was really wondering how you approach the national level of organizing, and especially in terms of coordinating individual organizations within a given country. For example, in the US, Kansas City Tenants is organized with you guys. The Sunrise Movement is organized with you guys. There's a few different organizations, Palestinian Youth Movement, Code Pink, different groups in the US. But I was wondering what role you might play in facilitating connections between these organizations, as well as with organizations and individuals on the left that aren't yet organized with you guys. We get involved when the international dimension of politics is activated. So there's lots of things that are domestic in nature, national level in nature, and we don't touch them because they require a type of conflict resolution at national levels that we are not going to be responsible for. Now, there's examples of national level conflicts that require international responses. The total peace process in Colombia is a good example. We've been called on lots of times, and I do want to emphasize, we do lots of stuff front of stage and then much more stuff backstage that we are kind of managing or coordinating or facilitating or helping out people when they need help. But I think in order to maintain a plural coalition, it's kind of critical that we don't interfere or intervene in partisan conflicts and agenda-setting exercises at the level of individual countries. I mean, I think that there's a role for us to play with more time and resource to be bringing people together and facilitating the formation of relationships at the national level. But just to be a counterpoint to your argument around national organization, I do think that uh, you know, there's a reason why our political map is pretty closely overlapping with the political map of kind of left-wing power, because, you know, why we're strong in Latin America and why we're not we're strong in Southeast Asia, because it does help when there are strong, confident, and well-coordinated left forces in a given country to be able to do the international work, both because they've articulated much more clearly what is international and what's local in nature, and because they have the ability to mobilize people to actually make something more meaningful. And that's, I think, a big challenge that we have. You know, I think internationalism or international solidarity is just not always relevant to a political struggle. People like to think, you know, everything is international or everything is global and you could reach for it. You could stretch to think about what the global dimension is. But I think a lot of stuff is really just doesn't generalize well. Uh, I don't think it's the case that you can say the struggle for housing in South Africa is the same as the struggle for housing in London. It just isn't. I think a lot of the, you know, you can have conversations and be inspired by each other and, you know, build relationships, which is super important. It's the baseline of all politics at any level. But I think that for an international, there's a certain amount of discipline or concentration to say, okay, what is the angle of intervention that is going to make this feel substantial where we're actually opening up room for left-wing actors to thrive or to survive? And I think a lot of it is about saying, you know, that's not really where we come in. We don't come in on, on this or that issue. We get called to do a lot of stuff around this. I mean, a lot of stuff we got called to do is like, can you write a declaration, a statement on this? Can you get a bunch of signatures under this? And most of the time we say, well, of course, we want to avoid the problem of being a kind of statement factory, which is a, such a familiar trap for international politics in general. It's a very weak instrument. Solidarity as a rhetorical gesture. Sometimes, uh, maybe you could find me an example where like some celebrity endorsement saved a life. I, I don't really have one. 
I think it tends to be about really thinking more politically about what are the blocks that can be you know, mobilized change? What are, what are the bills? What's, what's legislation? What kind of worker power? There's much more ambitious visions of what internationalism is and isn't. And I think to get to that much more ambitious position, which I think we do want to get to, uh, is going to require a lot of steep and disciplined thinking about where international solidarity applies. I've been thinking a lot about this. When you look at the International Secretariat of National Trade Union Centers, which split off from the Second International around 1900 to organize unions exclusively. One of the things that it's held up as is just a letterbox because it didn't actually do much besides issue reports and statements. It is a trap, and I'm really great to see that you guys are thinking about what solidarity actually looks like. I think it is very important that uh, conditions in, for example, Latin America are very, very different to an understanding of internationalist policy, specifically relating to imperial projects as they exist. And that's why I wanted to just finish off talking a little bit about the conditions that in Poland we have uh, experienced with the proximity of the conflict in Ukraine, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. A large part of this is because we have very much felt it in our local Jewish communities. For example, the JCC in Krakow has become very, very involved in relief aid, not just for Ukrainian Jews, of which there are now a lot in Poland, but for non-Jews as well. And I think that that is a very good example of how our communities can organize as part of a better example of help. There was an interview done with a of an American Haredi journalist by the chief rabbi of Poland, Michael Shudrich, in which he was asked how many of the refugees whom you are helping are Jews. And chief rabbi Shudrich answered, I haven't got the slightest idea. And the Haredi journalist apparently reacted by getting very antsy about it, saying that he won't be lectured to and so on. And uh, I think that one aspect that needs to be recognized is that the reason why this is something that's important for us is that yes, in Poland, we are part of the global north and so a conflict that is taking place in the global north will be more discussed about that is very clear and it's important to stress the difference in how ukrainian refugees are treated as opposed to refugees from the middle east and sub-saharan africa on the border with belarus this is all very clear however it is also a question of the actual you know proximity from the bus station from the city from which i travel there are buses that come in from kherson you can see on the board, you can see the size. Over 10 million people have crossed the Ukrainian border into Poland since February 24th, 2022. And I think what is a problem when it comes to a lot of activities in the Western left is that views which are very clear uh, when it comes to actions of the United States, so for example, the invasion of Iraq, nobody defended Saddam Hussein or his policies when the invasion took place. The idea was that there cannot be an imperialist project that is attacking a country without provocation. And I think that in the situation in Ukraine, the idea of an ethno-nationalist dictatorship, which wages a war of aggression to reclaim ancestral lands, and this idea that was used to justify the continued invasion, has been met with a much smaller reaction, because it was not done by the global hegemon, which the United States is recognized as. I understand that there was a bit of, a, of an issue when it comes to with statements, and what is very important is, as you as you've mentioned, to not become a statement factory for an internationalist organization. Organization. So I wanted to give you an example of one kind of assistance that has been taking place and maybe talk about what the Progressive International has planned or is thinking about in the future with partners of the ground in Ukraine. And that is the second uh, labor assistance convoy for Ukraine, which was the action of independent labor unions. I'm reading this from the Bulletin of the Workers' Initiative, which is a sister union of the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World. This was purely civilian aid that was taking place. There's a whole discussion about it from 
unions from uh, Italy, Spain, France and Brazil, and of course Poland that uh, helped out. They sent this aid to Krivirich, which is a mining town uh, near the front line, near Zaporozhye. And I wanted to just quickly translate a section of the interview with uh, Yuri Samoilov from the Independent Trade Union of Miners of Ukraine, which functions in Krivirich. He has asked, well, how do people relate to the war and what can happen after the victory in Ukraine? And he states that a lot of people are waiting for victory. We are counting for a victory, but we are not forgetting about class divides. Personally, I am counting for an increase in consciousness among people, belief in yourself. During the last decades, people have lost their faith in themselves and in their surroundings, in social institutions, in trade unions, in the army. The army now has a very high support, although we all know what kind of problems there are over there. For us, the army and the people is one and the same. This is what differentiates our army from the Russian. Everyone who is here, even if they are not at the front line, they are helping. And that is what I wish to say, that what we are seeing here is an internal and horizontal mobilization that can fix the mistakes that have been done by the government. And here I am thinking of economic aspects, not just military ones. So with that in mind, what can the Progressive International offer to uh, workers and movements in Ukraine who are now having this opportunity to be able to not just repel the invasion that is taking place, but also are seeing a certain levée en masse, to use a French term, in the same way that after the Second World War, there was the idea that we are not just fighting for victory to end the war, but we are also fighting for a fairer and more just world. Yeah, huge question. You know, the prompt was quite long and we could have a lot of discussion, debate about some of the posited arguments that were kind of embedded in the argument about the shape of the Western left. I don't know if I share your same view about what I perceive to be kind of a bogeyman about the Western left and the certain apologist position of the Western left. And certainly the organization that we run is not a Western left organization. By the composition of the council, the cabinet, or the membership, there is no way in which you can describe the Progressive International as a Western left organization beyond the fact that we have legal personhood in Geneva, which of course is the global center of multilateral action. Now we have our own story to do with uh, a relationship with our former member, Razem, with whom we've known and worked for many, many years. And that was about whether or not we would support NATO and explicitly supporting uh, NATO expansion and NATO deployment. That was not a question that we were able, I've mentioned this a few times, to find strategic unity between the various plural forces around the world. Now, this didn't surprise me then, doesn't surprise me now, as this seems to me quite obvious that people, for example, our member of the Solidarity Party of Afghanistan would support or endorse NATO as a legitimate military vehicle, right? So it wasn't these questions of what can an international do or support or what is the role of international. It was really came down to some very concrete political questions that became a kind of dividing line between some of our friends and allies, or I should say former members in Eastern Europe, as well as uh, the rest of the coalition. It became impossible to find strategic unity on, on the issue because of that Rorschach test. The key thing that divides the North or South, or however you want to define it, right, choose your geographical division, is whether or not you see the war in Ukraine as a war of national liberation, or whether you see it as a proxy conflict between NATO and Russia. Uh, the challenge that we have is that the people in the South that we work with, not just by and large, the overwhelming majority, see this as a proxy conflict between NATO and Russia. And then there's lots of people, of course, in Eastern Europe, but all over the West who see this as a war of national liberation, as you say, Zach, you know, repelling an ethno-nationalist or chauvinist expansionist force in Putin's Russia. 
becomes very difficult to make sense of kind of what the not just moral obligations are and the moral obligations have been clear and even on the western left they've been very clear about providing for humanitarian relief about accepting refugees and i've never seen anyone in our coalition kind of challenge those basic things and i think the answer to your question about what uh, an international can and should be doing in the context of a war where any support that these left forces can provide will be paltry compared to the massive amounts of humanitarian and military support that's been given by the European Union, by the United States, by the United Kingdom, is really what you said at the end of the question, which is about how can we engage with the question of reconstruction of a society, the economy, Ukraine that will be rebuilt when, God willing, this awful war comes to an end. These questions of reconstruction, we can't just abdicate those with these trade unions across the international left. There needs to be these fierce, serious, mobilized debates that can call on all of society to really try to question what is the Ukraine that is being rebuilt. These are questions that, of course, are considered taboo when we look back at the Second World War, because, of course, those were glory days, liberation, V for victory, D-Day, whatever the fuck. But the truth is that the way that the U.S. rebuilt Europe was hugely problematic, and we could do with a bit more criticism instead of glorifying the Marshall Plan and having all of our U.S. Congress, whatever people talk about, Marshall Plan for Africa, whatever it is. Right, we could do with a lot more historical criticism about reconstruction and 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 who gets to do it and for whom and how and uh, and what is the society that we rebuild. And I think that's an important place for uh, an international, which is otherwise in the context of a war, totally irrelevant, totally fringe. There's no scenario in which whether it's the Ukrainian left or the now either imprisoned or expelled Russian anti-imperial anti-war left is making decisive moves around what is now a, a truly great power conflict, even if its core or its nucleus can be seen reasonably as a war of liberation from an invading force. And so the question is, what is the agenda around which we can mobilize forces around the world? It's certainly not going to be around giving a thumbs up to NATO. It's just never going to happen. But it can be about trying to mobilize for a deeper conversation around a peace settlement. It can be about what are the funds and the financing that's going to be made available for reconstruction and what kinds of support can be given that are not uh, vulture funds, that are not basically people trying to privatize and hoard and do what to, to Ukraine, what we've done to so many countries around the world. So I would see that as a kind of role that could be played by an international. And I would like to get us away from a kind of demand to just basically say, we must basically heal this epistemological rift, a rift that has been deepening for centuries, not just between North and South, between East and West, between people who live in totally different political and social universes, to say these voices are the correct voices. It's just not going to create the strategic unity that I think is necessary to do anything effectively in Ukraine or elsewhere. And that's, I think, true all over the world. And certainly I would contest the idea that we did that elsewhere. We didn't listen to Iraqi voices, and we still don't listen to Iraqi voices. We don't listen to Afghanistani voices when they talk to us about what they want and how they want it. And, and the reason why is because we recognize in those third countries that when we say, no, these people are the people, you know, they have agency and they have the authority. I want that to be the case. I would love the people who are most affected by conflicts to have the most authority. But we recognize that, you know, these things don't travel. All of a sudden we say, oh, well, you know, in D.C., they don't really see it that way, right? Or in London, it just doesn't look that way in Afghanistan. Right. We play by different rules and we set different expectations for how we engage with different epistemological frameworks, realities and political circumstances. And I think that unfortunately, it's going to have to be the same way in Ukraine, because we can't just go to Argentina. We can't just go to Senegal. We can't just go to China and say, this is how these people who are the most affected by this conflict see it and therefore get on board or fuck off. It's just 
we can't create a political coalition on such fragile grounds, I think. There's a lot furthermore to discuss there, but we are over time. If you would like to have any final words, David, then the floor is yours. I would say, you know, whether it's Ukraine or Israel-Palestine or any of the more basic bread and butter questions of international coordination around, you know, IMF and WHO and WTO, these are not settled questions. And anyone who comes to you and says, this is the internationalist position and this is the internationalist vehicle, this is the internationalist tool, is lying. Because this tradition, as you look back over the 20th century and the late 19th century, was an emergent tradition, constantly killed in its infancy, constantly killed before it had a chance to mature. And we're still trying to figure out how to make it work. And there are missteps in that process. And there are things that we wish we could do that we can't do. And there are bitter disagreements that we're never going to be able to transcend. I think the point is that it's all works in progress and that we needed to be able to bring that spirit of generosity on the one hand, but experimentation on the other, because no one knows what they're doing in terms of international coordination. I mean, there are people who have been diplomats for years and they know one piece of it, they know one corner of it, how the multilateral system works. But even when you push them on that, they'll still say, you know, there's lots of things we don't know how to do. So left internationalism, you know, we live through one cycle of it with the World Social Forum, and we're in a new cycle of a deeper internationalist tradition that's less sort of transnational and more international in nature. And I think that we need to be excited about, not intimidated by, and, and especially really open to this process, which is going to take us in exciting directions. And we'll have its missteps, but not to, to fall apart when we can't find common ground on all the issues, which we obviously can't find. So I think that's the thing that gets me up in the morning, this idea that shit sucks and we're going to have to try to work among bad outcomes, basically. We're going to have to find ways to choose bad outcomes that are still kind of minimax and maximin in their own ways. That's going to be really, really hard. And we have to just keep working at it, seeing what works and what doesn't, because there are answers to these problems. They're just not always, they're not perfect solutions. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. It's been a great honor to have you on our show today. What you just said really reminded me of this one piece of wisdom I got from a book written by Subcomandant Marcos of the Zapatistas, and that is that we should be walking with questions. And I really think that really sums up the fact of the modern left, that the left has always been the politics of creativity and of love. And if we really like assume that one group or one person is going to have all the answers, then you're not going to have all the answers because the world's always evolving. And the answers, too, also have to evolve and adapt. And it's really incredible to hear about the work that you guys are doing at the Progressive International. And I really, really hope that we can work together in the future. Definitely. Thanks so much for having me, Zach. Thanks so much, Ben. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good rest of your day. It's up to us to call ourselves to task, to sing what's good and true, to bring about redemption. It's what we were freed to do. For what's the point of being here If we're not moved to change our ways It's time to live our praise We are carrying the stories Of the ones who came before What stories will be told of us we are here no more We commit ourselves to action It brings meaning to our days It's time to live our praise It's up to us to own the vision We are an answer to a call up to us to live the word.
words we speak for the benefit of all. It's up to us to bow down deeply. There's a broken world to raise. Elena Lishabea. It's time to live our praise. Elena Lishabea. It's time to live our praise.